I have been asked to mention to the church family specifically, if you're going to put your kids in Awana and you're planning on having them attend, please register them even today would be great. If you do it during the service, I'll see. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, if you could register them soon, we just need to know for number's sake. And there's several of our church family, you've had your kids in Awana, but you don't have them registered, and that's fine. We're not trying to like shame you or whatever. We just really need to know to plan for numbers. So if you could do that soon, that'd be really helpful. So God's Word is alive and it's powerful. And sometimes, let's just be honest, God's Word, when you read it, can be like, Wow, why did you put that in there? How many of you have experienced that? Why? Why did we need that account? Today is one of those accounts. And I think the reason that God does it, I'm not God, I don't know all the reasons, but I think one of the reasons God does that is, is because, because life is really messy at times, right? You in your own life, you know either your own heart and you know the experiences you've had in your life, you know the people around you and the experiences that they have had, and because we are all fallen, we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world, and whenever you deal with fallen people in a fallen world, life is going to get messy. I mean, like, really disgustingly sick. And, and the first thing that we do, because we're good Christians, everybody look up here, the first thing we do, because we're all good Christians in the room this morning, right? We kind of turn our nose up at that, don't we? Like, that may have happened to you, but that would never happen to me or my family. Already in Genesis, you want to talk about a list of sins? Already in Genesis, we've dealt with incest, with polygamy, with murder, with rape. And, and we can walk away from a Sunday and, and we can just think to ourselves, you know, I can't even relate to that because my life is so good. Thank you, Jesus. My life is so good. I can't even relate to that. But let me make this statement to you. Whether or not you've been affected by that, you live in a world where people have been affected by that. All that stuff that we just listed and more. You live in a world where people have been affected by that. And it affects how they think, it affects how they, how they act, it affects their conversations with you, and, and, and it has an effect. When you read through the account of Genesis, I'm just going to be honest with you, Genesis 38 seems out of place. Now, I don't know if you ever have done something where, like, you've read through the Bible, you know, with a plan or whatever, but, but you're reading, and all of a sudden, we're cruising through Genesis, Right? And, and, and now we have transitioned from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and now we're going to deal with Jacob's family, and, and Joseph gets introduced, and this intrigue of this story starts to get built, right? We got Joseph in this horrible relationship with his brothers. We got dad propping up Joseph as better than everybody else. We got all this stuff happening, and then God puts 38 right in the middle of the account. Some of you are like, what is 38 about? Well, you're going to find out today. But, but it's like God almost is like, he, like he's a Hollywood screenwriter who's writing you know, like for a serial TV show that you know, like has 12 parts, and then like we get to part four, and he introduces a whole new subject, and like, no, I want to know what's going on with the storyline. 
God isn't that way. This is part of the storyline. It's absolutely right here because, remember, in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. This isn't just about Joseph. This is about all of Jacob's children as well. And, and the reason that it's put here is because we've already seen that Reuben, that Levi, and Simeon, the three oldest boys, have already, have already disqualified themselves from, from leading the family, right? And what we're going to find out today is, is that Judah is no better than the first three. In fact, in some ways, he may be worse. But yet, God chooses him. God, I, I want to just say this at the very beginning of this message, this guy that, that I said last week was such a scoundrel, and let's just be honest, he's a scumbag. He is. From, from, from our self-righteous perspective of Judah, he's a scumbag. Yet God chooses this guy to be the one who will carry on the messianic line. He chooses this one to establish the royal line of Israel through. This guy. This passage helps us to understand, too, why Israel had to spend 400 years in the land of Egypt. You ever, when you get to Exodus and you're reading your Bible, do you ever wonder to yourself, why 400 years? Well, here's the problem. All along, God had told Abraham, once he named him as the patriarch of this, of this family that he's going to establish, he told Abraham, and he worked through Isaac, and he worked through Jacob, and one of the, one of the primary foundational pillar core concepts was don't intermarry and don't marry a Canaanite. Guess what Judah does? Anyone want to take a guess? He marries a Canaanite. And because of that, God's got to, God's got to reestablish the, the royal line. 400 years away from your homeland, oppressed in another country where you're treated as a slave, that'll get the line cleansed again. But there's one other thing that I really think of why God puts this passage before we even read it in this place. We know the story of Joseph. You guys, most of you can tell it forwards and backwards. And we know that Joseph is going to prove himself to be righteous. Right? He's going to go down. We're going to see this next week. He's not going to give in to temptation with Potiphar's wife. He, he's going to, from this point on, Joseph really handles things the right way. And what God does is he provides a contrast here between the wickedness of Judah and, and, and the righteousness of Joseph and who does he choose, church, to carry on? He chooses the one that you and I wouldn't choose. Let's be honest. If we're writing this story, we would pick Joseph every time, wouldn't we? But there's hope for all the rest of us because God picked Judah. <laughs> so let's read Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. 
She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when he was born. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Our rating alert. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep sharers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she, had, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned into her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Go ahead and just say what you're thinking. That's gross. Right? Verse 19. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Let's unpack Judah here for a few minutes, okay? Let's unpack Judah. Judah is full of all kinds of sinful behavior, is he not? 
He's full of all kinds of sinful behavior. We could spend this week just, just bashing Judah for his sinful behavior. But, but I want us to understand the wrong choices that led to wrong behavior. Because I know this in my own life, and you probably know this in your life. You don't wake up in the morning and just say this, today I am going to go out and I am going to sin worse than I've ever sinned in my life. No one determines to do that. But yet we find ourselves sometimes in some really bad situations because of our sinful behavior, and a lot of it has to do with the choices that we make leading up to it. It all begins back in verse 1. Right about the time after Joseph is sold into slavery, right? And, and, and Judah has failed his brother miserably, right? And, and he probably is upset with Reuben because really they just wanted to kill Joseph. And, and so we don't know why, but we know this, that Judah left. And the first bad choice I see is, is who Judah chose to be his associates in life. Judah had a bad choice of a friend. Now, we don't know much about Hira, but we know this, that he's a Canaanite, and we know this, that Judah isn't bringing Hira to him. He's going to where he is. He wants to go be away from his brothers, away from under his father's authority. I know he's an adult at this time, but still, this patriarchal society, his dad still had a lot of input in his life. He chooses to go away, and he chooses a friend out of the people that God tells them that he shouldn't be friends with. Every parent in the room right now is begging me to say, go ahead, say it, PD. But before I talk to the kids, I'm going to talk to parents. Parents, the people who you associate with are either going to point you to Christ or they're going to drag you away from him. And before you point the finger at at your kids and tell them to make good friends, make sure you're making the right friends in life. But it's really true, isn't it? It's really true. The people that you associate with will go a long way to help define what your character is. And Judah chose for himself a Canaanite, and the pursuit of this friendship with Hira leads to his second back choice in verse 2. If Judah isn't pursuing Hira, is he ever going to meet the daughter of Shua? Probably not. Notice that Moses and the Holy Spirit don't even dignify the woman by naming her name. She's just a Canaanite who's the daughter of Shua. And notice, (laughs) I already mentioned it, but Abraham and Isaac had specifically warned their sons about marrying Canaanites. So much so that Abraham sent his servant way far away back to the homeland to get a wife for Isaac. And Isaac did the same thing with Jacob, right? He sent, he sent him back to the homeland to get a wife. And Jacob is warning his children about doing this. And Judah disregards his father. Second bad choice, second bad choice that Judah makes is, is he disregards wisdom that has been placed in his life by God. Again, every parent is saying it. Go ahead, PD, jump on my kid right now. Before I jump on kids, I want to jump on the parents and the grandparents. Is this God's direction to us right here? 
church, is it? Does it have everything we need for life and godliness right here? Everything? How often do we choose to disregard wise counsel and go our own way? I I, I can say this 100% with surety. Every time I disregard God's word, I get myself into a problem. Every time. Every time that I think, yeah, I know it says this, but God, there's this circumstance, and you don't, you know, I think you'll be all right with this, that's when I'm going to get myself into trouble, right? Judah didn't listen to wise counsel in his life, and he sees this, and, and, and it is true, it is true that it really matters who you choose as friends, and it really matters who you marry. It really matters. Young people in this room, anybody who's unmarried in this room, it really matters who you marry. The scripture is full of warnings about unequal yoking of believers with, in any kind of partnership. And I would submit to you, there is no more partnership in this life greater than the partnership of marriage. You agree with me? It really matters who you marry. And what's interesting to me, the language in verse 2 is so similar to the language in Judges 14.1 where it talks about Samson who was attracted to a girl in the city of Timnah and it says there that he went and just took her as his wife. And you got that same language here. Judah saw this Canaanite girl, he was smitten with her and it was all about the raw physical attraction. Which tells me this. And we're going to see it come to fruition. That is no basis to marry anybody. The raw physical attraction. Now, let me be clear here. Husbands, your wife should be attractive to you. Okay? Wives, you should think that your husband is a hunk of burden love. <laughs> right? But that is no reason. Don't get, I'm just going to be blunt this morning. Don't get married because there's sex involved. And don't get married because, because you are just biologically attracted to that person. Judah couldn't control his desires. We're going to see that later, aren't we? This was purely a physical attraction. And so Judah, Judah marries this woman and, and, and produces three sons. She's a Canaanite woman, and, and, and so when Judah is trying to teach his, his sons about the ways of the Lord and the great God Yahweh, and when they go to Uncle, or they go to Grandpa Jacob's house, and Grandpa Jacob tells them the stories about how he crossed over into the land and how he had to wait for his wives and all these things, when he tells them about how faithful God is, his wife, on the other hand, is saying, but there's also these Canaanite gods too. Maybe she was even this way. Well, you can, take your, you can take the sons up to, to Grandpa Jacob's house as long as I get to have some input too. And then whenever they're old enough, they can just choose. Does that sound like parenting today? It's from the pit of hell, people. It's from the pit of hell. Don't do that to your kids. I would submit to you that if, that if you're attracted to a non-believer, you'd be better off never getting married in your life and be miserable the whole time as opposed to getting married to, to an unbeliever, producing children with them, and reaping the fruit of that. 
So Judah has these sons, and this is where the story gets gross, right? Verse 7, we don't know anything about Ur other than the fact that this guy is really, really bad, so bad that God just like, I'm done with you. Which should be sobering to us. There is a point when God has had enough, and he will just, he brought you in and he will take you out, right? Then we have son number two, Onan. And what Onan is asked to do is to, to practice this thing that we see in the scripture, the, the, the leveret marriage is what it's called. You heard the story of a kinsman redeemer, you know, Boaz and Ruth, the idea of, okay, next in the family line, okay, the oldest brother has no, has no one to carry on his line, and so the next brother in line, you got to step up. And the idea is, you literally, okay, R-rated, I'm just going to do it. You go in, you have sex with your sister-in-law so that she will get pregnant, and then she will have a son, and that son will be the one who carries on the line. It's weird, right? It's weird. And you want to know how wicked Onan is? He understands that if he gets his sister-in-law, Tamar, pregnant, that, that son, if, if she has a son, that son will not be his, and, and, and that son will not get the double, ble- will not get the, will get the double blessing, and Onan won't get it. Because here's the deal. If Tamar doesn't produce a child, guess who's next in line? Onan. And this guy's so wicked, he, he goes in. Look at verse 8. Judah says, go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring. Verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he did this more than once. He enjoyed the sex with her, but he wasn't going to fulfill what he was asked to do. That guy is a dirty, gross guy, right? And what does God do? He wipes him off too. Judah is so obtuse at this point, it's a nice way of saying he just isn't very smart, that he just begins to think that his sons are the problem here. They're just all cursed, right? And he's got one left, so what's he going to do? He's going to go into protection mode. Parents, you cannot protect, I have said this before, I'm going to say it again, you cannot protect your children from every evil in the world. And you are not going to change God's plan for their life. So, what's Judah do? He sins his first sin against Tamar, and this is his sin. You know what, Tamar, wink, wink, you just stay at your dad's house and, and, and here's the deal. When Sheila grows up, when he's old enough, it's really hard to understand Sheila as a guy's name, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. Sheila. Sheila's a boy, okay? When Sheila grows up, Sheila will be your husband. All of the while in his mind thinking what? He's never marrying you. He is never marrying you. I'm going to wait till you die. Hopefully you die soon so that I can give Sheila to, to another woman and Sheila will be the one who carries on the family. And so Tamar leaves without an heir and, and not only that, she leaves that without any security because, because her security is in the fact that she would have a son. That's how she'll be cared for. 
And Judah just basically boots, boots her out. He deceives Tamar. Let's be honest. There is nothing more scary than a woman who has been scorned. Some of you are afraid to laugh at that. But is it true? This woman has been scorned. And she's going to take matters into her own hands. So Judah's wife dies in verse 12, right? And who does he run to when his wife dies? Do you see it there? In the course of time, when the wife of Judah, she was daughter died, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers, he and his friend who? Hira the Adulamite. Again, can I just say this to you? Who you choose as your friends are really, really important. This guy is not going to lead him towards righteousness. And this is a different time of year. And, and there's some significance here in verse 12, okay? It's time for sheep shearing time, okay? And they're in Timnah. That's Gentile territory. Understand what's going on here, okay? It's during this time that, that it was well known and recorded for us in history that this is an important time of the year. And, and, and what would happen is you would have these pagan cult-like religions and practices that they believed, they really believed this. This is a great thing to believe, right? That if you get a cult prostitute, you're going to have larger herds and you're going to have more grain in your fields. Does that sound like God-made or man-made? And let's just, let's just stop here for a second. This is a perfect illustration of what man-made religion does. Say, what do you mean, PD? Man-made religion always goes opposed to God's word, and man-made religion always pro promises some kind of pleasure, and it delivers zero results. This is what happens when, 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 you, when you make the wrong friend, and you marry the wrong person, and you start to believe the things that they believe. Next thing you know, you find yourself entertaining the idea of, let's just hire a cult prostitute, because you know what? I can't trust an almighty God who has taken care of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my dad. I'm going to trust in the fact that this cult prostitute and this religion is going to help me in this. Mind you, remember, who's Judah? Judah's in the royal line. <laughs> and if it can happen to a guy like Judah, can it happen to us? Church, shake off your self-righteousness. Can it happen to you? Absolutely. Shake it. Don't just shake it off. Shed it and burn it. Burn the code of self-righteousness. Do it now. So Tamar gets this, I, this scheme. And, and she dresses and acts like a prostitute. But ask, ask yourself this. How does Tamar know Judah's going to do this? How does she know? Because Judah has no reputation at all that's good. <laughs> She's like, I'm pretty sure I know. I'm pretty sure I know what my father-in-law is going to do. And you want to talk about identity theft? She literally traps him with his identity. Do you see it in verse 18? So, so she's, she's in disguise. 
Judah's so overcome with lust and the, and the need to have sex that, that he doesn't even pick up on the fact that he recognizes this woman's voice. Her face is covered. He can't see her. But, but, but he is so consumed with this idea, i got to have sex, right? That, that he says, hey, and she says, what are you going to give me? The exchange happens, right? He's like, I'll give you a goat. And she's like, okay, where's the goat? I don't have it with me, but I'm good for the goat, okay? Prove that you're good for the goat. He gives her three pieces of identity, the signet and your cord. The signet was actually attached to the cord that would have been carried around his neck, and the signet was important. That's how he endorsed all his legal documents with that signet. It's as good as your signature today, right? So he gives the signet and the cord and the staff. You say, okay, so it's just a walking stick. No, this was an important walking stick. It probably had his initials in there. It probably had the names of his kids in there. It might have even had Tamar in it. You know the old family Bible that had recorded all the marriages and deaths and that kind of thing? That's what they did with their staffs. It might have even had her name on it. And here is Judah very quickly, very rashly, giving away his identity just for a quick dalliance of pleasure. Again, shed your (laughs) self-righteousness. We're no different. It may not be sex with a prostitute, but it may be this. You know what? That guy cut me off in traffic. I am going to tell him he's number one, and I don't mean this way. It may be that the boss asked you to stay again for overtime, and you just, you, you in his office, you're like, oh, yeah, man, I'm all for you. I mean, and then you go out and you rip him to all the coworkers. There's pleasure in that, isn't there? Until the boss finds out that you ripped him, right? This hardly seems like the guy that should be leading a family, much less be in the messianic line. Anybody with me on that? This hardly seems like the guy. Like, God, who are you choosing here? What, what are you thinking, God? And then just look at your own heart and say, God, what are you thinking? And so Judah has to be humbled. Judah just pursues this. He doesn't think about the possibility of anything bad happening. And again, verse 20, who's involved? Who's involved? Hira. He keeps showing up. Every, have you figured this out so far in this passage? Every time Hira shows up, bad things happen. So, Hira, okay, Judah can't possibly get caught bringing the goat, so he he gets his friend Hira to do it for him, right? And Hira goes looking, and what he finds out is there there was never a cult prostitute here. What are you talking about? And Hira's like, I I don't know. And and here's the thing. Do you want to be the guy who is asking around where the prostitute is? (laughs) Do you want to be the friend of the guy who's running around asking where the prostitute is? So Hira comes back, and, and he says this, hey, I can't find her, and Judah's like, that's okay, man, it's okay. We're not, we're not, we're not going to stir up any more here. And he thinks for three months that he's gotten away with it, right? It's nagging him that he doesn't have his signet. It's nagging him that he doesn't have his stick. Anytime he would go to a family function, like, hey, what happened to your staff? Oh, I don't know, I lost it, I can't find it. You haven't seen it, have you? Right? He just plays this off, right? 
And then we see the ultimate in self-righteousness here. When it's reported to him in verse 25, hey, or verse 24, hey, Tamar, Tamar's pregnant. Aha, it's the opportunity that Judah has been waiting for. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, right? We can, we can get rid of Tamar, and then I can raise up a, 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 an heir for myself through Sheila, who's a guy, okay? Right? Thing is, Tamar has his identity, doesn't she? And Tamar's scheme actually works. And just like David was exposed by the Nathan the prophet when he sinned with, Jas- with Bathsheba, Judah is totally exposed, and it's you are the dude. Right? If you love poetic justice at all, this is kind of sweet, isn't it? When you think about it. Hey, can you identify who these are? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, why don't you come live at my house? So far, this story's been really gross, hasn't it? You say, PD, show us some grace. Show, show us Jesus in this. Well, I'm so glad you asked. God chooses through this child to build Judah's family. And Judah, the fourth son, becomes the one who will carry on the Messianic line. I've already said that, right? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So let's, let's, skip, let's skip down later in the chapter, and we're going to go back to the beginning of it here. But let's go, let's go to the Christmas story. I know, I know, we're just getting Halloween stuff in the stores, and as soon as Halloween's done, it'll be Christmas stuff. I understand that, and you're like, PD, we know you love Christmas, but this is taking it a little too far, okay? Just bear with me, right? So you remember that that Mary's pregnant, right? Joseph finds out he's going to divorce her quietly, even though he could have her put to death, right? So he's, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Now go back with me to the beginning of the chapter. His people. Who are his people? Who are Jesus' people? Well, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. This is Matthew establishing the royal line of King Jesus, okay? And, and the royal line has to come from Abraham and it has to go through David, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by who? Tamar. You mean the one who dressed up like a prostitute? The one who deceived her father-in-law to get him to sleep with her? That gross story makes it into the line of Jesus? Yes. Because your gross story and my gross story makes it into the line of Jesus too. If there was no room for gross stories in the line of Jesus, then none of us have hope. None of us have hope. Say, I wouldn't do it that way. God would. 
You know who else is in this line? If we keep reading forward, we're going to find that Rahab, the prostitute, is in this line. We're going to find that Ruth, a foreigner from Moab of all places, is in this line. And we're going to find out that Bathsheba, who did not say no to David and who David violated, there's two to make that problem, right? She's in the story too. And you know what's true about all of them? You know what's true about all of them? They all need a Savior just like me and just like you. They all need a Savior. People like you and me who can't produce any righteousness that will please the Heavenly Father. I think we've established that Judah is not capable of producing righteousness. Anybody agree with me? I think so, right? He's not capable. People who need grace, and I don't mean just like, oh yeah, you can be first in line in front of me. I'm talking about supernatural grace. People that need grace, the kind of grace that forgives sin, that wipes it away and separates it as far as the east is from the west and chooses to love and to adopt undeserving people. That's the kind of grace that we all need. You see, the horrible account of Genesis 38 has a really beautiful ending. And here's the thing, and I know I've said it to us like about four times this morning, shake off the code of self-righteousness. Because if you don't shake off the code of self-righteousness, you will never find yourself in the family line of Jesus. You know what's true about every person who clings to their self-righteousness? They cling on it all the way to hell, and they find out that it does them no good there. If you're trusting in yourself this morning, if you're trusting in the things that you do, if you're trusting in the fact that you come to church and that, and that you give money in the offering box, if you're trusting in the fact that, that you've raised responsible children, if you're trusting in the fact that you run with the right kids at school, if you're trusting in that, it will all be burned up and your life will be lost. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. I think it's only fitting that we get to end the service this morning with the testimony, a public declaration of a young woman who understands that her self-righteousness isn't enough. And she's going to publicly declare that when she gets in the waters of baptism. Isn't that awesome? If you haven't experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of your sin, there's no better time than to, to throw off the code of self-righteousness than today. Just throw it off. Come to this God, this Savior Jesus who loves you, who, who gave his life for you, who, who came so that he could save you from your sins. And, and if he could save Judah from his sins, can he save you from your sins? If he could save David from his sins, can he save you from his sins, your sins? Yeah. Don't just come, run. Run to this Savior. We've got a few things we're going to do in this service, but after the service, if you're, if you're that person who hasn't experienced the grace of God, drag me down, run. Push people out of your way in a nice way. So that you can meet this Jesus, I would love to introduce you to him. And show you from the word.
how you too can know that he came to save your sins, not just the sins of his people, your sins. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to put this account in the scriptures. Because if we miss the, if we miss the, the, the value of this and, and, and don't see ourselves as Judah in this, we're missing the story. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We thank you for the testimony of baptism that we're about to see. This is so exciting and so awesome. And we thank you that we get to witness it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.